Ephemeral is a production of iHeartRadio. Since I started working on this show, which was longer ago than I care to admit, Hi, I'm Alex Lance. I've been asked a lot of questions. Good questions. But sometimes hard to answer. The basic, what do you talk about? The trickier, why is that interesting? And the pointed, why is it important? But let's slow down a second. If something is ephemeral, what does that actually mean? I tell people what I'm working on and they're like, ephemeral, what? What?" That's Sarah Wasserman, who's made a career out of answering questions like these. My name is Sarah Wasserman, and I am a professor of English and this other thing called Material Culture Studies at the University of Delaware. And I am finishing a book uh, about ephemera. It's called The Death of Things. A good place to begin, as you might expect, is to pull the word apart. It comes from a Latin-Greek combination word. So epi, meaning of or on, as we have in Epicurious, something like that. Epito, epilogue, epidemic. And hemera, meaning day. And the word was originally used to signify things that basically only lived for one day. So the mayfly was the classic example. In a single day, or sometimes a long weekend, depending on the particular species, the mayfly transforms into its adult winged stage, flies around, molts, mates, lays its eggs, and dies. Over 2,000 species of mayfly make up the aptly named order Ephemeroptera. In the most rigid connotation, ephemera refers to paper. It's come to mean mainly printed material that doesn't stick around for long. So we use it to think about broadsides, ticket stubs, brochures, pamphlets, flyers. Envelopes, lottery tickets, paper dolls, maps, post-it notes. You can drive yourself crazy trying to make an exhaustive list of all the printed material that passes through people's hands. That's the textbook definition, right? For me, someone who's interested in expanding that definition, I always think of it as an object that is signaling its own imminent disappearance or destruction. So it's an object that sort of announces when you encounter it, hey, I'm not going to be here for long. I'm not going to be here in the near future. And that makes it different than other kinds of objects that people think about sometimes as being ephemera. It's really about that knowledge when you encounter the object that, it, that it's short-lived, it's transient. But there is an inherent paradox here that I get stuck on. The thing isn't supposed to last, and yet in spite of, or even because of its transience, it is given a second life. Is a mysterious piece of tape still ephemera if you put it in a podcast and push it out to the web? We don't have to think about contemporary media to answer that question. Let's take the, a classic example, a stamp. Ironically, they're called forever stamps. Doubly ironically, I think one of the very first forever stamps depicts an iceberg or a polar ice cap that is, is melting. But if you take the stamp, right, generally when people buy stamps, you use them once, you send your letter, and then it's done. Someone's going to throw it out somewhere. It's not meant to be kept. But of course, many people have stamp collections. They're worth a lot of money. They have sentimental value. People collect them in albums. They save them forever. You get your grandfather's stamp collection, so on and so forth. 
Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. I'll give you another example. Meet Innovation. A 1989 promotional shoot for Winnebago, the RV company, was going horribly wrong. The Winnebago Concepts and Engineering Departments have developed a multifunctional bathroom. Privacy, I don't know what the f*** I'm reading. Frustrated salesman Jack Rebney kept blowing his lines, erupting with anger, and swearing continuously on camera. Things got so bad that the crew cut together a tape of the most egregious moments. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Tony. Don't slam the f- door. Reportedly in an effort to get Rebney fired. Listen, I've got to give a, a clue here now. I don't want any more bullshit any time during the day from anyone. That includes me. This video would become known as Winnebago Man and would become infamous. What shot is it? Oh, sh- For years, the video survived within fringe cultural institutions. Individual collectors duped and traded it on VHS along with other audiences. Not even funny anymore. The clip would air, believe it or not, on public television. say nothing of the flies in my head. Vehicles like the show with no name out of Austin, Texas. We have this, all right, this, this, is, this is one of the all-time favorites, and it really is. This is, this is the golden clip. Um, this is, uh... And in 2006, a digitized version would be posted on a then-fledgling YouTube, quickly going what would be called viral. Let us get the f*** out of here. That could have been the end of the story. But over the next few years, filmmaker Ben Steinbauer tracked down Rebney, now in his 80s, and united the former salesman with fans he didn't know he had at the Found Footage Festival in San Francisco. They documented the adventure in a 2009 film also titled Winnebago Man. So how do we trace the distance between those two poles? On one end, the salvaged raw tape of an obscure commercial that I'm not sure ever went to air. On the other, a phenomenon that's been adapted, remixed, and viewed millions of times. A unique work that could last, physically and culturally, for who knows how long. If Winnebago Man is a modern example of ephemera, and I think it is, how do we reconcile that duality? It's not that ephemera just by default are gone and lost to us. But I do think it takes some effort. Because the things aren't meant to last, someone somewhere has to decide that they're meaningful and resurrect them or maintain them, curate them, disseminate them. It's not just de facto going to come to us. Part of the reason it feels tricky to talk about ephemera is that, in English at least, We have an underdeveloped vocabulary on the subject, and curiously so. Given how into our stuff we are, we have a lot of terms that are very indistinct. I mean, I think when we talk about the objects in the world that we encounter, that we use, we talk about stuff. Visit HowStuffWorks.com. We talk about things, this thing, that thing, very undifferentiated. And then there's rubbish, trash, refuse, there's obsolescence. Which VCR is right for you? The obsolete object, the outmoded object, and all of those terms I think are related and intersect in in interesting ways. The stamp, at some point it becomes trash. You might also argue that they're becoming obsolete. Who sends letters anymore? Look at that. Look at that, Uncle Jack. The particularity of ephemera is that they're not really meant 
to leave a remainder. Generally, unless someone's doing some work of saving them, they're lost to us. That's different from something like trash, which we throw away. I mean, there's that away. We're not meant to see it. We put it somewhere. We don't really know where it goes. We have a suspicion that it's going somewhere that's probably not good for the environment, but it, it's still around in some form, biodegrading maybe. The obsolete is something that if you have a box of VHS tapes or CDs and they're taking up space and you don't know what to do with them, you are encountering the physical remainder of the obsolete. That sticks around in a way that ephemera doesn't. Winnebago Man, in a way, is reconstituted trash. The tape was bound for the cutting room floor, which is actually an outmoded term since you don't generally cut the physical videotape when you edit it. The ported YouTube version retains the artifacts of its obsolete VHS origins. Why can't I remember it? And as it gets remixed and re-remixed, it's picked up some digital artifacts along the way. Studying ephemera is a way of touring our history. There are so many incredible objects that are keyed to particular moments in history, like a World's Fair, you know, New York 1939 World's Fair, that's a big one or World War II memorabilia. These moments where the objects can teach us about our own history and make meaning for us. In Chicago, tears of joy mingled with cheers as a million people sang and danced in the streets. Narrative meaning, affective meaning, different kinds of meaning that you can maybe get at better through a depiction of these objects than just, you know, a plot point or a straight history. Let's say you've done a a podcast episode on a no longer available or obsolete form of television broadcasting. I have, but more on that later. So let's say there's a museum exhibition on that form of broadcasting. And you can go to the museum and you can see all the equipment they use and they have the stage set up and they've done a recreation. You are a dandy crowd. The museum, in trying to recreate this and trying to make it available to visitors, to experience. You get a sense of the thing, the object, you know, what it is, what it was, but you don't get a sense of its disappearance. In, in effect, by resurrecting and recreating it, they don't recreate the disappearance, which is obviously the thing that I think can be really poignant and meaningful. Sarah's thesis is that narrative, storytelling in fiction or elsewhere, functions especially well at this difficult task. Because it's not giving you the object itself. It's giving you a description of it that you, you, know, you have to read, you have to imagine. There's an imperative to narrate the object and its disappearance and its vanishing and its loss that I think other forms have trouble getting to. Winnebago Man, the movie, foregrounds this aspect. Whatever happened to this character? What occurred in the 20-year gap between commercial shoot gone wrong and internet sensation? If narrative helps us see the whole picture, the moment and the loss of the moment simultaneously, well, what do we do with that knowledge? One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. 
lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch, and look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster. Some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it, like disaster. Elizabeth Bishop published One Art in 1976. I think she really gets at the way that the written work can do more than just give us an object, give us a historical object, but give us the loss of that object. It's like the poet saying to herself, if I write it, if I write about this loss, I turn it into something that isn't disaster. Although clearly it, it is, right? I mean, it's so it's filled with so much pathos. What happens when you take that loss and the cycle of production, consumption, and disposal that creates it and ratchet it up to 11? That's the recipe for America in the 20th century. We Americans in the 20th century become, I don't know what to call it, ephemera juggernauts. Textual making has been an accompanying sound effect to all of American history. Listen to the heartbeat of a great industry. We are the pioneers in many ways of technologies for creating disposable goods. Everything from, I don't know, paper plates and plastic cups to paper tablecloths and hygiene products. The wide variety of fabrics that pour out of textile mills plays a great part in your daily life. A far bigger role perhaps than you realize in your home and in every home, rich or poor, from coast to coast. Susan Strasser has a great book called Waste and Want that chronicles this consumer history of Americans and their obsession with disposable things. That happens in the, in the 20th century. Faith in the American way of doing things has produced and is producing a better living than anywhere else on Earth. We also have planned obsolescence. The famous one is the light bulb. The light bulb companies figure out, hey, if your light bulb burns out sooner, you're going to have to buy a new light bulb sooner. So we're going to make some more money on that. And that's still very much present today if you're looking at your iPhone 10 and you know that the iPhone 11 is around the corner, we're still in that market mindset of planned obsolescence. If the first half of the 20th century was about maximizing means of production, the trend of the second half has been away from physical goods and toward the digital. So we create all these technologies to have cheap paper goods of all different kinds. The new paper towel that actually attracts moisture. Even like clothes made of paper that you can throw away after one wear. Sort of feels different too, doesn't it? In the second half of the 20th century, we start to move away from paper and print. Where will technology take you? Towards everything being seemingly immaterial as it becomes digital. How will you communicate? Most people don't have hard copy printed photo albums anymore. They have 
digital photo albums or they just have their photos on their phone. With digital technology like this, driving to your local photo mat could be a thing of the past. And so there's a way in which the long history of consumer society in America is really a trend from the solid, the durable, I'm going to have a sweater that I mend and remend and I'm a steward of this object to the, the opposite pole, which is something like Snapchat, where it's designed to just go away instantly. It's a, it's a really strong arc in our consumer history. Pick your poison if it's Facebook or Flickr or Google Drive, where you start to wonder, okay, this thing seems immaterial and yet I can never delete it. Or inundated, we're flooded by this immaterial, seemingly immaterial data about ourselves. And so we have this new activity in the 21st century, which is something like self-curation. You know, there was a court case not long ago in, in Europe about deletion and Google. People had to fight for the right to be able to delete things from Google. On the one hand, everything seems immaterial. All the objects seem to have disappeared from our hands, but they're also, in certain ways, ever more enduring. You know, one thing that's been great as a, as a researcher of this topic is I can access a lot of the ephemera I want to work on online. Oh, I want to see an inverted Jenny stamp from the 1930s. OK, I can look that up online. I don't have to go to a physical archive. But I wonder if we're losing touch, I mean, to, to use that word conscientiously, with the materiality of a lot of things. And, and we lose something in that process of translation. I have students tell me things like, oh, I didn't really grow up drawing on paper. I just grew up drawing on an iPad. You know, my, I, I stop and pause and think, okay, what, is, what does that mean? Uh, what gets lost if you didn't hold crayons or eat paste or, <laughs> uh, you know, have to crumple your paper or turn it over to the other side? And I, I don't want to be so conservative to say everything is lost and it's terrible and we should go back to the way things are. But I am deeply committed to thinking about the differences and, and just making sure that we understand them at the very least or try to. If these things that were, quote, never supposed to last paradoxically continue to exist, is death somehow cheated? More to the point, is interacting with ephemera an experience that, consciously or subconsciously, connects a person with their own mortality? Ephemera, I think, are especially moving because they seem to have their own life cycle. They're made, they're born, they enter circulation, they live, and then they die. We think of things, we think of matter as being the opposite of mortal. We think of it as being enduring. We think of it as being stable and inert. And ephemera have this kind of time scale, this temporal dimension that makes them seem mortal, like us. I think that's part of the reason that authors find them meaningful. They can become proxy stand-ins for humans or nations or communities. To make that more concrete, take an example. The 1939 New York World's Fair World of tomorrow. was actually built on the Valley of Ashes, as Fitzgerald calls it, in The Great Gatsby. Gateway to the $155 million wonderland. They transform what is basically a dump into this bright, shining, gleaming future city. And everyone goes. I mean, really everyone. In a way that we can't comprehend today. Everyone goes. From far and near come countless visitors. By every mode of travel, every means of transportation, 
They arrive to view the marvels of the greatest exposition in history. You go and you say, oh, this is the world of tomorrow. This is the world as it could be. There are all kinds of problems with the vision that gets staged. I mean, racial problems, nationalistic problems, colonial issues, all sorts of things. But in that particular instance, people knew that it wouldn't be there. The fair was a temporary installation, like a 1,200-acre carnival set up in Queens. It was open for two seasons, from April to October, and closed permanently in 1940, as most of the participating countries sank into another world war. That experience, knowing that it's going to be gone, feels exhilarating but melancholic for a lot of people. And so the souvenir craze, you know, the souvenir boom is huge around that fair because people want to take something with them so that when the fair is gone, when they're no longer there, but also the buildings are gone, they have something to remember it by. The Parisphere and the Trilon were the two iconic buildings, and they get sort of put on everything. The 700-foot Trilon rises above all else, and the circling helicline that leads into the Parisphere's exhibit Democracy is a pathway to the future. One of my favorite souvenirs is after you came out of Futurama, which was General Motors' vision, sort of model city of the future, you would get a little button that says, I have seen the future. Sensational is the Futurama that projects you into 1960, the Highways and Horizon show. You know that you have this item, this object, that's going to commemorate this event. It almost feels like it's shoring up against that feeling of mortality. Susan Stewart talks about the souvenir as an object that you need when an event is no longer repeatable. So if you go to your Ariana Grande concert, you want the ticket stub because you're probably not going to go to another Ariana Grande show. or You're certainly not going to go to the one in 2019 Philadelphia. And so you need an object because it's not repeatable. Many ephemera are doing that work. They're kind of saying, I was there. I saw this thing. It's gone now but I save it. And that allows me to project myself into the future, to project myself into the past, to stave off that encounter with death that might be implicitly happening. In the intro to Sarah's upcoming book, she lends a warning to those embarking down this path. Once you're looking for it, everything seems to be stamped with a half-life. I start to wonder, like, is everything just becoming ephemeral? Is everything immaterial. I do think it's a kind of condition of being in the world. Some things just don't stick around. And things that we don't necessarily think about. So, you know, in the early 20th century, you can look at these records where urban planners tell architects what the lifespan of a building should be. So a hospital should die, let's use that word, sooner than a bank. Because a hospital has to adapt to technology, but the bank should make people feel secure that their money is going to be there. So even our buildings, our cityscapes have lifespans. So I do think it's baked in. But I do also think that we have encountered it and baked it into our experience even more in this country in the past 100 years or so than, than some other places. The fact that it is baked in that ephemerality surrounds us in immeasurable, unpredictable ways, suggests, perhaps, that the best course of action may not be to draw exhaustive lists of disappearing objects, but to think of this as a lens for viewing the world. Prescription glasses. We learn to see only as we practice using the eyes. 
if you recognize that things don't stick around forever and yet leave some kind of trace, sometimes that's a physical trace, sometimes that's an emotional one, a historical one, I think many different things happen. I mean, I think one is that there's a kind of different relationship to environmental concerns. If we recognize our attachment, it's ironic, our attachment to disposable objects, uh, we can think about what that's doing to the environment more. But I, I guess I'm also interested in recognizing that total loss, the complete erasure of an object, and total presence, as in, I possess it, it's mine forever, that they're both kind of fantasies. I think we do have something like a more realistic or realist relationship to the world. I think that that teaches us that temporary formations and temporary objects can, can be meaningful. I think that it maybe helps us understand that we don't need to cling so tightly. It's a kind of anti-nostalgic position to realize that, that some things change and things aren't ours necessarily in the way that we think they are to begin with. The fiction that I'm interested in is really good at reminding us of how important it is to to let go of things. You know, the, the trilon and the perisphere that I mentioned from the 1939 World's Fair, when the fair closed, they stripped off the plaster and they melted down the steel for bullets. It's an amazing moment that fiction, E.L. Doctorow's book World's Fair, helps us remember that these things that were icons of the beautiful, gleaming future just around the corner, in fact, went into the most literal manifestation of, of the war effort. Stories like that remind us of how flexible and fluid the material world around us is, and that we too should, in response, maybe try to be fluid and flexible. Thinking about disappearance and thinking about it as meaning-making and something to sometimes celebrate and something that's really interesting and there should be podcasts about it. You know, that, that, that actually can teach us that disappearance is a part of our history and how it moves forward. Ephemeral is written and assembled by me. Alex Williams. And produced by Annie Reese, Matt Frederick, and Tristan McNeil, with technical assistance from Sherry Larson. Special thanks this episode to Master of Introductions David Weinstein and to Sarah Wasserman. Please always bring along a poem. Follow her on Twitter at Sarah L. Wasserman and at her website, sarahwasserman.com. This track and much of the music in the episode came courtesy of the artist Mon Plaisir. Learn more at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. You'll find links to all this and more at ephemeral.show. Next time on Ephemeral. There are currently thousands of television networks. But once upon a time, there were four. NBC. CBS. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. ABC. 
and Dumont. There's a treasure of pleasure for moments of leisure with Dumont. There wasn't a lot of money in saving programs in the 40s and 50s. This is the Dumont Television Network. One of the big selling points of television is it's live in early TV. You're watching something as it's happening. Instead of all these mothers, you want me to take these travel along? Your wife has prepared 19,710 meals. There he is. He is beautiful tonight. It is largely forgotten today, but it doesn't deserve to be. Thank you. That's just our little story about Dumont, friends. Visit us on the World Wide Web and interact with us on social media at Ephemeral Show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs>